If you are a fan of the Dive Bar Rockstar podcast and would like to help support the show, there's a great way that you can do that and start a new fashion trend. We have a new merchandise page on the website which features t-shirts and hoodies that are available for sale on Amazon. Just click on merchandise in the top menu and all of the links will be there or go directly to divebarrockstar.com slash merchandise. Get started early on your Christmas shopping at divebarrockstar.com. Welcome to the Dive Bar Rockstar Podcast, a show exploring the lives of professional musicians of all types, touring musicians, recording artists, songwriters, engineers, bar bands, wedding bands, and anyone making their living in the music industry. Whether you've dreamed of being a professional or you already are one, this is the podcast for you. I'm your host, Eric Baines, and I hope that you not only find some entertainment here, but also some helpful tips, trade secrets, and ideas that will help you achieve your dreams. So it was somewhat recently announced that Dwight Yoakam, with me on bass and vocals, will be playing Red Rocks Amphitheater in Morrison, Colorado on the 31st of this month. And it's only the second time that I've played there, but it's uh, it's a big deal for me, you know, having grown up in Denver and uh, in that area. So that was always the dream gig to get if you could only play Red Rocks, you know, and if you've never seen a show there, you definitely should because it's one of the most beautiful venues in the country and the history is just insane. Like the uh, the Beatles played there and Jimi Hendrix, John Denver, the Blues Brothers, Carol King, the Carpenters, Sonny and Cher, you know, among just hundreds and hundreds of other awesome acts. Uh, U2 recorded their Under a Blood Red Sky album and uh, concert film there. So I'm, so I'm a little bit excited. And it's, it's going to be awesome, August 31st. And then I just happened to get a text from an old friend from Denver not too long ago. And so I thought, well, that's, that's meant to be. So let's have him on as a guest. He's an awesome drummer. He was a, a member of my original band in the 90s, The Fringe in Denver. And we played hundreds of gigs together in that group and other, other groups before he moved to Los Angeles. And out here, he became the drummer for the German punk rock star Nina Hagen. And um, after that, he was signed to Elektra Records with a band called Ghetto Blaster. And then his life took all kinds of other crazy turns. So um, I'll just let you listen to the interview and... Uh, and, and enjoy it. But uh, he's a great guy and an awesome drummer. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jeffrey Mintz. First of all, you're, you're still in Denver or you're back in Denver. I, I'm back in Denver. I basically came back for the, for the pandemic. How is Denver? You know, we, that's where we've been. <laughs> that's how, you know, I, I kind of miss it a lot of times. I mean, I love LA. Like, love it you know what i mean like it's i found my home and it's it's been so amazing but i do still have this romantic notion of denver and, and memories of playing in the scene so are you you're gigging around there and stuff or are you, you know, obviously I, in the studio and yeah yeah i was gigging up until the pandemic and uh you know i was it took me a minute to to reconnect with the people that i'd been playing with you know because i i was gone for Mm, 10 or 15 years, right. but I ended up playing with some of the same people. Um, you know, I ended up 
playing reggae on the rocks with the, you know, Judge Roughneck, other bands. So I got to do some pretty, pretty big gigs. And then essentially the locally, locally big gigs. Right. And essentially the pandemic shut everything down and I'm, I'm just regrouping now. Got you. So obviously you're in your studio. Is that where you live as well? Or you have a separate spot? No, no, I have a separate spot. I have a separate spot where I live. Yeah. This is just a, you know, it's basically a warehouse space. Oh, cool. Twenty four seven, and it's pretty cool. It's like an old grocery warehouse, so you get like these wood floors and brick walls and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Cool stuff for recording drums. It is, yeah, yeah. That's something I focused on during the pandemic was getting my, you know, like my kit mic'd up really well, so it's just plug and play and being able to do some tracks. So I've got a few projects going on just based on being able to send tracks here, hither and yon over the internet. Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of essential to everybody now. Really is. Kind of glad that happened in a way because it's really made me aware that you can actually do that really successfully. It's not yeah. the same thing in the same room, of course, but you know. Right. But now everybody I don't know that anyone tracks in the same room anymore anyway. You know, it's like, <laughs> good excellent point. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's not even a thing, you know, it's too expensive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know what I was thinking about because I was listening to the Leland Sklar um, podcast recently, and uh, mm-hmm. just what he was saying about his in ears. He's like, "I'm not going to wear any ears. I didn't want to wear any ears because there's the vibe and being able to talk to people." And I think just even like between takes when you're sitting in the control room, hanging out with your bandmates or whoever you're recording with, can really open up the actual track in the long run. I was thinking about it. Uh, the first time I saw you play was with Sundance and the Men in Blue back in... I remember that band. Weren't you I, in that band? I was eventually in it, yeah. And it was like blues and sort of rock and blues, you know? So was that, uh, was that something you enjoyed playing? We both sort of came from that blues scene because after that, the next band we were in was The Fringe because I basically stole you out of the band and that was my band. But then when that sort of collapsed, I was like, I just want a gig. I want to play my bass. I want to show yeah. up and I want to go home. I don't want to be a band leader anymore, you know? So then I went back into the blues, but the blues in Denver in the eighties and nineties was kind of like a thing. It was a pretty, pretty serious scene. And you being a college educated drummer was, was that a fun gig for you? Yeah. You know, I think again, I, I was, I was a punk then and I don't think I appreciated what I was being handed at the time. And I, w- I would get a little belligerent. I, you know, I, can I, this will probably will make it into the podcast, but I swear that I refused to bring a ride symbol to that gig for a while. <laughs> and I'm like, I look back at that and I'm like, what a fucking little dick, you know, really? <laughs> um, and I don't know why, honestly, but I, I think I did have a bit of an attitude for a while there. Um, but looking back on it, you're right. Like that whole scene was pretty, pretty happening. You know, there was a lot of great blues bands. There were a lot of great, you know, I was playing a lot of reggae and ska at that time as well. Right. And uh, I remember that the the gig scene, like I, the clubs were packed out. And, you know, I mean, the pay was crappy and it's still pretty crappy. I think it hasn't changed much. Right. But the gigs were super fun. And like people like you were available, like the level of musicianship was was really high. From what I can recall, you know, it was, I learned a lot. And then the studio work that came along with that. Again, I learned so much that was really helpful when I ended up, you know, in LA and, you know, being presented with like, you know, click tracks and pre-recorded drum tracks that were needed to be replaced or whatever it was I was 
was working with, I at least had some experience. And I, I owe that all to, to Denver. Very cool. And then, like I said, I kind of stole you. And uh, I, I had a brand band with my brother and a, another friend from high school, Tony Hanneman. And we had a band called The Fringe, which we were kind of an all original band when we met you. Well, I mean, not all original. We were never all original, but we did covers that we wanted to. Or like, I remember like playing in Boulder or whatever people everywhere you go, Sweet Home Alabama. So we made up like the most fucked up version of Sweet Home Alabama. Yeah, you know, I we remember that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a fun band, you know, and I felt, I felt like, I've always got, I think about tone every once in a while. You called him tone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think about him every once in a while and kind of wonder what he's up to, you know, but I just remember that fun. It was the songwriting, honestly, that I thought attracted me to the band. And then again, there's a level of musicianship that I have come to appreciate that, that, you know, people like you offered at that time that helped me raise the bar as far as my own playing went. Oh, that's cool. You know anything about tone? Yeah. In fact, I just saw him over Christmas. In fact, I mean, yeah. shoot, if you're there, the next time I'm in town, we should all get together. We actually had, this was before I got the Dwight gig. So it was four years ago, four and a half years ago. We had a little fringe reunion of the original four guys with Kevin Lane nice. on drums. We didn't play or anything, but we just all met at a bar. And so maybe we'll, next time we'll have to have an extended fringe reunion. Yeah. You know, we'll, we'll have you and... Uh, Jimmy Ozell was was subbing for you. At wow, some point. really? Yeah. And Dan Farmer. Dan Farmer was in that band? Yeah, he was I, to replace my brother, which is ultimately wow. why I got out of it. Because it was like, I got to, because by then we had gotten into the top 40 scene. And so they were, had all these expectations of top 40 stuff. We're doing less and less originals. And you're subbing out, my brother's subbing out. And I was just like, I don't want to do it anymore. You know, it's just like the soul killing experience of top 40 clubs playing five yeah. nights a week you know yeah yeah i, I did that I, I i feel i'm glad that i played my drums for that many hours in a row for that long but you're, you're right it kind of sucks the life out of you if you're only doing that and i think that's why you know both you and i left sort of the the relative comfort at least for me i i, I left the relative comfort of being you know on call and steady gigs and just like bailed out and like, okay, fuck it. I'm going to, I'm going to, I, I started out in San Francisco and I ended up playing in blues clubs there oh, for about a year before I transitioned to Los Angeles. Yeah. Got you. I remember one time we had a whole week like cancel or something and you were just like, honestly, I'm so relieved to not have to do that week of top 40 gigs. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> it was a very telling situation for me because I'm, I'm just kind of going through it at the same time of just like, I didn't want to do those gigs either. You know what I mean? How, how how do you think that affected your, you know, did that affect your decision to move to LA? Is that? That was really honestly good eight years before I left, you know, because then I went on and got the gig with Nelson Rangel after, well, I was with the Creighton Holly band for three or four years. And then I got the gig with Nelson Rangel, smooth jazz, saxophone player, saxophone player. And that sort of changed my whole world. At that point I had moved up a level. He signed to a label in New York. So I get to travel now and, you know, getting one or, you know, I'm getting a track or two on his record where I get to play and, you know, Will Lee's on the same record. And like, you know, like I'm starting to move in a situation where it's like, it started, honestly, I mean, this podcast is not supposed to be about me, but um, it started to get weird to come home and no offense yeah. to local musicians, but it was like the conversations start to get harder when people don't really understand 
what it's like to go and the pressure of playing a gig in New York, you know, you know, compared to coming home to Denver. And I, it's a kind of a hard thing to explain. But when I, I went to visit LA and I just thought, I'm just now I'm surrounded by people who do what I do. They drive yeah. nice cars, they have houses, they understand, you know, and Denver's awesome, great musicians, but it just was so far from where I wanted to be, I guess, you know, that was really the thing that started making me think I need to, to move. I mean, honestly, the, the fringe experience was interesting because I wanted to be Toto in the nineties when it was like two princes and all these jam bands were like, you know, were the thing and being in Boulder, near Boulder, which is like the jam band capital of the world at that point, I just did not fit into the scene at all. Yeah. I think our band did not, you know, I was trying to go through this R and B, you know, slick pop production and the world wanted, you know, three chords played loudly with a strange voice over it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, the, it's, it's kind of what I'm confronting now. Cause I've been, you know, in this area for, you know, over a year. And then honestly, I was, I was, I was playing gigs and what, what happens is that you start to realize that there's a difference in the commitment to your um, instrument. Mm-hmm. If you're not being challenged in a city like Los Angeles, and some of us are like, want that challenge. Some of us are like, I want to be like, you know, challenged, like, you know, intellectually and musically, yeah. you know, I want to throw myself into situations that are going to be hard, you know? And then people like that uh, leave the comfort of their local band scene you know right um and then if if you come back so coming back from la i know a lot of good musicians but none of them have the level of commitment or professionalism (laughs) (laughs) and i'm gonna get like stalked instead (laughs) (laughs) but it doesn't feel like the level of professionalism because la is a it's a professional entertainment industry yeah if you're if you're not good enough, there's 10 people right behind you who are good enough. Exactly right. <laughs> and so you got to be good. <laughs> you know, you have to have your shit together. Whereas on a local scene, the, there's not that much pressure to be good. Right. And so the, the level of, 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 of playing for many local bands is, to me, it's, it's not as high as I would like it to be. And yeah. if I say, said anything about it in the context of a band, I would come across as like an arrogant fuck. But to have you say it back to me and that we can, you know, communicate on that level, it's just absolutely true, you know, to to have the guts to move to LA to uh, you know, probably New York. I barely ever lived there. You have to really, really, really want to be up for the challenge of being faced with great musicians everywhere you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it. That's exactly right. And if you're the kind of person who sees somebody way better than you and says, oh my God, I'm going to bury my instrument in the ground and I'm never going to play again. Mm. LA is not the town for you. If you're the kind of person who sees somebody way better than you and says, I got to go home and practice, yeah, that's a person who's going to thrive. And that's what I loved about it as well. I mean, I think, you know, I feel like that's where we connected, you know, as musicians as well. I feel like that was the thing. Because when I saw you, at the time I had a, a fine drummer, you know, Kevin Lehman yeah. in the fringe. And, um, but this was before Kevin came to LA. And he's sort of fresh out of CU in uh, Boulder. And uh, it was not, we didn't see eye to eye as far as grooves. And then I played with you in Sundance and we could like in the middle of a shuffle, 
change up the groove or do something different and it was still funky and it was still you know it was all the pocket was there and yeah. i was like uh this is what i want in my band you know i need yeah. some someone to start with the pocket and the groove and not the chops necessarily you know but that was that was yes that was the ultimate thing it was like you get frustrated with the musicianship and and uh you get to LA and there's never a lack of musicianship. Like the, like you said, there's, I mean, really there's more like 30 guys that are waiting to take your gig, you know? Yeah, I was being conservative. That's for sure. And they're all incredible, you know, and, and they've all come from the, they're the best guy in their town and they came to LA. You know, so. so you moved to LA and what was the first thing you did when you got out here? Did you know some friends or how did you get started? Yeah, there had been a migration of musicians from the uh, from the Denver and the Northern Colorado area. So by the time I got out there, I had, I knew um let's see a number of people in there there was a a big huge hip hop orchestra called Daka, D A K A H. Um and uh, that was uh, Jeff Gallegos and Josh Lopez. These are all Colorado people and uh they all came out to LA and started sort of like infiltrating various different you know like scenes and so i i pretty much had a had a gig um at the temple bar as soon as i got there do you remember the temple bar yeah very much so santa monica right? yeah yeah in santa monica yeah. yeah and i was playing with a band called rhythm room all stars and you know that's that's josh lopez who's you know as far as songwriting goes he's a guitar player but you know has been nominated for a few grammys because he's co-written with uh Oh, Will I Am and a few other people, and wow. you know uh, Davy Chegwitten, who's a percussionist, who's actually uh, I'm his his son's godfather. Uh, does a lot of work out there in the studios, and you know, like has done a lot of video game work stuff like that. So you know, has made a living as a percussionist in L.A. But these are all Colorado people, kind of migrated out there. Cave Rostigar uh, is a Colorado guy. Do you know of him? He's a uh, man. That's named. Pretty- rings such a bell he's like a cover of bass player magazine bass player got you um, but he's a colorado guy i used to do sessions with him in denver all the time he's on everybody's record now so anyway by the time i got out there i was uh i had a place to stay i had some gigs and uh, i was able to you know at least get by for a while living in like a group musician house in north hollywood someplace and living the dream <laughs> Yeah, it was rough. It was rough for sure. You know, it's like hot dogs from 7-Eleven for dinner every night. and <laughs> But it was it was fun. I was, yeah, you know, I really enjoyed that challenge. It was, there's a lot of great places to play in LA, at least at that time. Yeah. Smaller, smaller venues. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's uh, changing all the time. It's going to be interesting to see what, what survives the pandemic and what doesn't, you know, as far as yeah. places to play. But I think the demand for music right now is off the chain because everyone's been deprived yeah (laughs) so it's sold out shows and crowded venues at this point since we just opened up like two weeks ago or something yeah did you have you been uh gigging yet or are you guys is your tour just starting we've done like once a month our first run was april Mm. so we went 13 months you know (laughs) with no gig (laughs) There's a hole in my heart when I think about that. Like, I can't believe it, how long it's been since I played a gig. Yeah. 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 I mean, honestly, for me, I just needed a break and uh, I needed the world to stop for a minute so I could, you know, yeah. get my wife pregnant. And I had built this studio and I'm on the road all the time. So now I had a year to be in it. And 
And yeah. uh, it was just, I just needed a break so bad. I think, cause that's the one thing about Denver that's attractive to me in my brain. Now it's like the pressure in LA, even no matter what level you get to, it's always there. It's never, mm. and eventually it just, it's exhausting, you know, mm. wouldn't it be nice to just go to a gig where no matter what you do, everyone's going to love you and just hire you back. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, Wow, you're. No, I, I've I've been missing LA like a lot, like a, just a ton. Like I really, I don't know. I think I think you could come back and it would be great, and everybody would love you. But I'm pretty sure that you would start to feel the way I feel, which is like not challenged. You could play the best gig in all of Denver, and it wouldn't be as uh, as professional as I think you're used to. Right, and yeah. and that. That's like, so what, why, why is that like something that, that we strive for? I, I think it's just like being good at your craft, Yeah, you know, and that's, if, if that's who you are, which, you know, even when I was teaching uh, Buddhism full-time and not playing drums, I still would hear music or listen to music and, and have that thing in my heart, you know, that was like, oh, that's who I am, you know, and, and being good at it is important to me. And so when I come into a band that I feel like could be better, (laughs) I'll generally say something about it. And that doesn't always go over that well, you know, unless you're in a situation where it's other people that have that same drive, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm afraid you'd come back to Denver and for a long time you didn't, You'd be like, oh, this is nice. It's quiet. It's peaceful. And you'd be like, shit, it's too quiet. It's too peaceful. There's not enough challenges, you know? You're probably totally right. Because <laughs> you get old, old enough to where you don't want to gig. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I always just say that too. Like if I wasn't a musician, I probably would have never left Denver because it's, it's a gorgeous place to live. It's pretty amazing, you know? Although if I never see snow again, I'll be fine with that too. I'm not excited about yeah. it. But, um, well, that's totally true. So, so you eventually get the Nina Hagen gig. Is that kind of your first big gig when you got out there? Yeah, honestly, that was uh, another Colorado connection because the bass player in her band was uh, somebody I knew from uh, Colorado days. Oh. I, I never actually knew him, this guy, Brad Van Lunen, but you know, we knew of each other and uh, we had run into, and, into each other at gigs in LA a couple of times. And so when he got that gig and they were looking for a drummer, he called me up. So you know, I, I auditioned for that and ended up getting it. And yeah, that was the first, you know, actual touring, you know, big venue kind of, kind of gig I'd ever done. Had you heard of her before you got the gig? It's kind of like this, the same the way it is now regarding Nina. If you know about her in the U.S., it's because you have a specific, you know, like taste for that kind of music. So I, I, she was in my mind. And I may have heard like one or two songs in my lifetime, uh, but I didn't really, I wasn't that familiar with her until I Googled her and started listening to her catalog and started figuring out who she was. Cause she's, she's not just a musician. She's like, she's an icon. She's like the first young woman rock star out of the East, Eastern Germany. Right. And East so, Berlin. She's from, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think before the wall came down, her family were artists and musicians in the East and she ended up kind of emigrating to the West 
but you know, as she was a fa- she was a fashion icon, like in the kind of Andy Warhol days, and God, yeah. you know, it wasn't New York. She an actress as well. She's done some acting as well. Her mom it might be who you're thinking of. Uh, her mom, I think, uh, Uta Hagen is a famous actress who I think uh, even as a teacher, an acting teacher. But Nina is the daughter of Uta, and then a German, an East German, like folk musician activist got you then in in her like 16 or 17 like she was super young she got hooked up with this sort of uh kind of it was almost like a fusion band and made their they made their first record um white punks on dope do you remember that song no uh -uh. white punks on dope uh it's actually not her song i forget who it was but anyway uh sort of like kind of semi-complex grooves with kind of she she's operatically trained so she was doing some like kind of weird (laughs) operatic stuff so yeah i hadn't really heard of her but when i googled her i realized that what a great what an amazing catalog she had and then when i got to europe honestly we were like we got to europe and we did not know what we were in for because she was so freaking popular in germany it's like Wow. You know, being swamped and like we're, you know, playing for you, it's not that big, but playing 2000 sold out 2000 seat venues and just having like the the walls shaking and people screaming and everybody knows the words to all the songs and most of them are in German. Wow. And uh-huh. so we don't even know what the songs mean, <laughs> <laughs> let alone the words to them, to a lot of them. So she's super uh-huh. popular in Germany, France and South America. So those are the that's where I spent most of my time touring with her. Very cool, yeah. And she's after watching a bit of her on YouTube, she's it's almost like performance art. You know, it's she's uh is very in the I don't know the music is super eclectic. Like when I, I the I, only reason I ever knew her name is because of you. Like I'm yeah. and I was like, oh, she's a punk girl from Europe, and I'm like, oh, okay. But then when I finally listened to it, I'm like sometimes she's sort of punk rock and other times it's, it's, you know, R and B ish or like, I don't even know how to explain. There's like loops and like, there's more poppy stuff, I guess is what I'm saying. It's eclectic. Yeah. Well, you know, punk rock, when it came out, like for us listening to nevermind the bollocks or any of those like early punk rock albums, they're pretty tame (laughs) 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 in retrospect, but like at the time punk rock, you know, was considered to be pretty aggressive and pretty anti-establishment. So I think that's the kind of punk rock she came out of. But of course she, as she matured as a musician, she did move into other styles and, you know, she in the 80s and 90s, she was doing a lot of like kind of well-produced rock with like Keith Forzy and some of those producers from that era. Yeah. And I guess it's, it just struck me as more musical than The Clash or something. I don't know. There's a, it's a little more deeper harmony and harmonically and like there's a lot of cool stuff going on. She, she's definitely worth checking out if you're, you know, like especially from the video point of view because she is a performing art, performance artist. She's done some incredible videos over the over the years, and um, for me as a musician, not really being that familiar with her with her work, uh, I quickly realized that you know she has that thing that really really good musicians have, where if she's like picks up a guitar and starts you know playing a simple chord progression, I would get riveted and other people would get riveted. Kind of like I think Bob Dylan, of course, has that as well, where you just like. Right. You know, maybe not traditionally a good vocal vocalist or whatever, but it, but when he does what he does, 
it's med- mesmerizing. And Nina definitely has that. And this was your first big gig. Was it everything that you, you dreamed of it being? Do you have a tech and stuff and like, yeah, yeah. I never touched my drums for a few years there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had started exploring uh, electronics. So I, I kind of invented the Roland SPDX on my own where I had like an Octopad sampling, you know, an Octopad trigger pad. Mm-hmm. And then I had a sampler. And so I would trigger background vocals and loops and stuff. And so you'll see if you ever see videos of me playing whether I'm wearing headphones, because a lot of times I'm, you know, I'm triggering loops that they don't, it's not like Pro Tools playing through the whole song. It's like I'm triggering a loop for the chorus or I'm triggering a loop for the verse or I'm triggering background vocals or, or effects. So you weren't playing to a click? No, no. I mean, no, there was never a click, but often... Well, not often, but part of the time I was playing along with a loop. Oh, got you. Yeah, because when you're triggering backup vocals and stuff, but there isn't a click, being at the right tempo is a pretty important thing. Yeah, for those, <laughs> I, I, I had a loop. So you can, set up, you can set up trigger pads so that you can trigger a loop, and then when you trigger the next loop, it shuts off the previous one. Right. And so I just got really good at not fucking that up. (laughs) (laughs) And so does she have like an all American band? Did she live in LA at that point or? Uh, Yeah. 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 That's why she was putting together her band. She had a house in uh, the Hollywood Hills. And so when we would do, you know, we would do tours in the U S and it would be like house of blues tours or, you know, uh, not Viper room, a key club, Mm -hmm. you know, Venues about that size. We could do that and just do airplane tours kind of like you where we just fly into a, a, a major city and, and could do the, you know, one or two shows there. Got you. Um, and she would do the shows in English and the crew would be American. Gotcha. Uh, we'd go to Europe and she'd do the shows were, you know, mostly German and uh, a mix of German and English. And the crews were all, were all German. Have you have you played Germany much? Not really, no. I've I've did a you know, while I was in Denver actually, I did a DOD tour of of Germany. We we're in West Germany for like three weeks going to military bases. Um, but I've been I used to kind of joke with Keiko because we did Russia and Eastern Europe and I was like, when are we gonna go to the real Europe? <laughs> 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 but uh so no uh I, I haven't done as much in western europe at all really yeah the the just i was thinking about german crews i still am in touch with a lot of those guys because very very laid-back people but incredibly good at their jobs and very very precise yeah. about getting things exactly right and uh I, again it's like that level of professionalism that 
you know, I, I really admire. But sometimes, you know, we'd walk into a venue and they would make the the house switch out the sound system because it wasn't what was on the writer, you know, basically, okay, move all this out and get what we wanted. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Imagine the middle of Siberia. (laughs) Where it's like, you can bitch all you want. We don't have, there's not what you want. In fact, when we would go to Ukraine, um, Keiko still used a KX-88. And there was like one KX-88 in all of Ukraine. And we would pick <laughs> it up when we get there, go do our touring, and drop it off before we leave. <laughs> oh, wow. Man. Yeah. She, so she didn't bring her, her controller? Was she? What, what else was she using besides that? Um, she, I think she, her sort of signature piano sound is an M1 piano. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, so... We eventually found an M1 module, or I think there was even eventually before I left, they had come up with some software that that had it. So she was bringing a laptop at that point. But, um, you know, in the States or in Japan, like a KX88 is pretty regular. It's a pretty easy thing to backline, you know? So um, it was only, and she's super, I mean, speaking of being precise, like working with Japanese people, same thing you know the techs over there are just insane and yeah right everything right everything down and measure everything and everything's exactly how you left it when you let you know yeah um, yeah but she's to the she also is like if her seat if they're backlighting a seat that's the wrong seat she would carry her seat for a while actually because if it's just like a centimeter off she knows it and she doesn't you know they've got to adjust things you know so, yeah yeah um, it was pretty tricky, but man, some of the bass amps that I would end up playing on just, I've never even heard of this, you know, <laughs> like, or like Funny. a whole line of Fender bass amps that I, that they didn't have in the States that were like, or like Marshall bass amps, you know, and like just oh, crazy wow. stuff that somebody has laying around in the back of a weird theater in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. You know? It sounds like a real adventure. It sounds like fun, like fun, like really fun, but I would imagine that could get a little, frustrating if you're not able to you know perform at the level that you want to perform at in those yeah so and, I guess you got to go with it you know yeah for sure yeah. it was more just the the um the touring is hard you know it was overnight trains or like buses with no heat in the middle of winter in russia uh-huh. like it was really really hard it was fun the first maybe two times i went it went and did it because i first time i was in red square i'm just like i can't even believe I'm here. This is incredible, you know, or at the Kremlin or whatever. But I don't know. I think I did 13 tours over there. And oh, wow. by the end, I was ready to kill myself yeah. pretty much. You know, yeah. <laughs> it was, it was, uh, it was rough. It's probably why I drank so much on those tours as well. Yeah. Just to, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, it was really, really hard touring. We used to fly back and forth from LA to you know, say Paris for a, a few shows or whatever. So we do a lot of back and forth. And I just remember that the actual, the, the plane trip started to kind of get to me. Like, I think I could still sort of feel it in my shoulders, you know, like uh, that jet lag thing. And I, you know, I, yeah. I, I tell my girlfriend now, I'm, she's like, let's go to Europe. We should go to Europe. I'm like, uh, I don't know, man. If I could just like teleport there and be there. <laughs> oh, man. I know. It's. I feel bad about it, but I'm exactly the same way. Like the idea of a ten-hour flight is just no, thank you. Especially like if you're flying Aeroflot and Coach, 
<laughs> I've had a middle seat to Moscow, you know? Oh, you know, or like and you're next to an old lady and like, weirdly, the old ladies are the worst. <laughs> They're the ones oh, that yeah. don't care at all. And they, oh, they just spread their stuff out and you're the, oh, and I'm a nice guy, you know, I don't want to be disrespectful, yeah. but it's like, ah, oh, yeah. And then my Shove back. over grandma. That's what you got to hear. Say it after me. <laughs> Shove over grandma. <laughs> <laughs> Shove over. <laughs> I remember being on uh, Air Turkey. Yeah, I don't think that Turkey actually has a has a uh, an airline. I'm not sure what I was at, what plane <laughs> I actually was on, but it said Air Turkey on the side of it. I'm like, <laughs> it was it was it was it was a like it was the unlike any airline I'd ever been on. Every every seat smelled like farts. Every single seat. <laughs> 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 and it was like me and five other people on this entire jetliner and then when i took like i i was thinking of marrying the person i had been with for seven years but we, i had never really spent a full year at home with her so oh. i was like you know and the keiko thing was sort of it took me a good two years just to get enough in-town work to transition out of that and you know 12 years with her and it was great but i was i was tired of Eastern Europe, I guess, <laughs> um, you know, just, you know, I played those songs enough. So yeah. for a whole year, I didn't fly at all. And uh, it was just so great. Like, Oh, my back worked again. And, and yeah, you know, yeah. just physically I just felt better. And so anyways, yeah. A million stories. We can, we can not drink and talk about them another time. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or maybe, maybe one or two. I don't want to be a bad influence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, I have to confess something. I, I love books, but I, I don't love reading. And it's, it's been something that I've, I've wrestled with since I was a kid. You know, I, I can read, I have read books, but they're very time consuming. And I've spent most of my time trying to build a music career, <laughs> which takes a lot of time. But one thing I definitely do a lot of is drive in LA traffic on my way to a gig. And there's a solution that combines those two situations, and that's called audible.com. Audible has thousands of audiobook titles, and you can listen offline anywhere, anytime. The app is free and can be installed on all smartphones and tablets. And they have just a ton of music-related titles, like All You Need to Know About the Music Business by Donald S. Passman, How Music Works by David Byrne, or Music Production Secrets by Calvin Carter. And you can get a free 30-day trial right now if you visit audibletrial.com slash rockstar. That's audibletrial.com slash rockstar. I'd like to take a second to thank you for listening to the Dive Bar Rockstar podcast. As a new podcast, getting the word out is a vital part of what it takes to keep the show on the road. Uh, or off the road, as the current case may be. If you would like to support the podcast, all you got to do is subscribe wherever you listen. And if you have an extra minute or two, please leave a review. You can also share and follow the podcast on your social media apps. Okay, enough begging. I hope you're having fun. And once again, thank you for listening. So, all right. So Nina Hagen. Nina uh, Hagen. Is that, that leads to Ghetto Blaster, which was a band that was signed to Elektra. Yeah, it was a, a management crossover between the Nina Hagen band and the, the woman who... who found ghetto blaster in small town missouri she found oh. these guys you know and, and you know really good band some of those small towns because there's not much to do 
you I've realized you can find some of the like most music conscious, fashion conscious, like kids um, yeah. ever who like know everything about the newest bands. And that's what Ghetto Blaster essentially came from. There was uh, it was in L.A. It was uh, this guy, Theo Mondel, who was with uh, Beck for a long time. He ended up joining the band through the management. And then the management also found me and kind of put us together with these Missouri boys. And then, then based on that combination of people, um, shopped the band like crazy and eventually signed the band to Electra. I remember signing the contract outside the Viper room on a, uh, on a newspaper machine. Oh, wow. <laughs> 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 like, yeah, this is the rock and roll lifestyle. We had just played some showcase at the Viper room and you know, the, that's the lawyer cool. showed up and was like, all right, let's go, boys. Wow. So did you feel a shift going from sideman to like band member? Was that a different sort of consciousness? I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I think that I always even kept myself I, in my mind. I think I was still I was still sideman, even though I was a full band member mm-hmm. because uh, it was the lead singer's band. I mean, he, he was like uh, wrote the songs and uh he had the look you know like bowie has the two different colored eyes he had that going on you know like really just super gorgeous dude like you knew if i was standing next to him it was pretty clear whose band it actually was (laughs) (laughs) uh but yeah so i I did sign so i was a, a band member but i didn't have any publishing and i i didn't really have much financial power in the band and so so you, you recorded a record. It was great. Eric Valentine producing. Yeah. And Jacques King, who is probably uh, one of the most uh, sought after recording engineers of these last 10, 10 years or so. Gotcha. And of course, I had no idea that I was working with such great people because I was an idiot. But uh, <laughs> looking back, I'm like, oh, man, that was Jacques King. And that was Eric Valentine. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. So there were a lot of great people involved and big money, you know, because record labels were the thing then. And we, record? uh, we recorded at Eric's studio uh, called Barefoot Studios. And it's in Los Feliz. Oh, okay. uh, I forget actually what street it is on, but but it uh, it was Stevie Wonder's former studio. Got you. So it's where uh, Sir Duke was recorded there, and you know, like all those classic Stevie Wonder tunes that you know, and the ones that he played drums on, yeah. uh, like everything on Inner Visions. I think he played drums on, and uh, maybe not Songs of the Key of Life, but Fulfilling His First Finale. Wow. Uh, yeah, so as far as drumming in that room, I'm like, Stevie Wonder played some of the greatest grooves I've ever heard in my life in this room. <laughs> um, so cool. Did you guys tour? Did the record... You were saying it, the record never came out. The record never got released, but we were doing like industry showcases, so we were in New York a lot. And, um, cool. you know, like I said, just like all the you know famous rock venues in the LA area because it were really like a Rolling Stones ish kind of look to the band. Uh-huh. You know, it was one of those bands that was styled by the record company, um, but then had like a Beck vibe to it regarding like the actual songwriting. So they would put us in, uh, you know, like I said, the Viper Room. Um, the other rock venues on the on Sunset Strip, like pretty much all those places, we would do showcases. And then uh, 
for a while we were, there's a, a building in New York city called the, the music building. And it's just like, you know, rehearsal studios, recording studios, music stores, and it's all just like one big. And so at some point, the record company built us out an apartment with a rehearsal studio in the music building. Wow. I know. Like, just throw money, throw money at the band. Yeah. And um, so I lived there for a while. But, you know, and then again, just anywhere there that they could get us in front of industry people, they, they would have us play. But never, no real touring. Got you. And so at some point, your life takes a crazy turn that some people would think is a crazy turn. And you, you get into Buddhism. Is yeah. Sort of around the end of that band or is, how do we get to being a monk? That's a, it's a yeah. fascinating story. I'm sure. Yeah, it really, it really was. Uh, I'm think, I, I don't know if there's anybody else that's actually made that same transition, but I think a lot of people go through the same mental process that, that I went through, but even when I, so let's go back a little bit and say, even when I knew you, back in Colorado when we were young and I was playing in your band, I had an interest in meditation and I was meditating a lot and reading about it. So I was just one of those kids that, you know, read Siddhartha a bunch of times and, you know, like uh, was really interested in, you know, the understanding of the mind and how you can use meditation to train your mind. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I, as I was getting more and more work and touring more and more, I was, feeling a lack of balance. And, you know, like I said, I was drinking a lot and doing lots of drugs. And, you know, I started getting deeper into like studying Buddhism and thinking about it and to try to find some equilibrium in there. And so uh, when we were in New York, where I, you know, I was talking about, I, I had, you know, we were living, there was a lot of time off. Mm. We were living in downtown. So I just Googled, you know, meditation classes near me or something like that ended up at a, at a Buddhist center nearby. And I realized that they offered not just beginning classes, but like intermediate and college level courses. And I thought, well, that's something I really would like to, to know more about because of the practicality of, of Buddhist studies. Um, it's really just, it's, it's an understanding of your mind. And like I said, training your mind and, and uh, being able to, function in the world in a more uh, peaceful way, I would say, or more, yeah, in a calmer way. And that's something that attracted to me about it. So I started going to classes. And then when, um, when Ghetto Blaster, when the New York thing kind of petered out, we ended up back in LA. And uh, I found that there was the, the same Buddhist centers were there offering the same classes. So I started attending more regularly. And then when Ghetto Blaster got dropped... You know, to put it in the context of the kid that I was then, you know, at least it feels like I was a kid then. <laughs> I had come like that close, tiny, so about as close as you could possibly get to being a rock star, you know, and all those dreams that you have when you're a little kid and you've right. never played a gig before and you just started playing drums. All that stuff had, had just, I'd gotten just right there and then it all just got taken away by the decision of one record company exec right and, uh, that was that was devastating for me at the time and to answer your question a little more clearly i'd say yes the experience of um you know going through the the machinery of the of the mu music industry at that time 
left me in a place where I felt like I needed to think about the world in a more spiritual way to try to, you know, when your sense of worth is all only tied up in your musicianship and external success, (laughs) (laughs) to have it all taken away. Yeah. uh, Either, honestly, either I was going to, I was going to drink myself to death or, you know, shoot heroin and, and say goodbye, or I was going to find some freaking way to dig myself out of that. You know, I know it sounds dramatic, but that's, that's exactly what happened. You know, I mean, that doesn't, that sounds perfectly normal, really. I mean, that's the, that's the thing about LA and the experiences that we have that I don't think a lot of normal people understand that it, it kind of messes you up when you've flown to Paris on a regular basis. It's hard to go back. You know, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to go then and live a normal life. You know, when, yeah. when you see some of the stuff that, um, there's a fascinating five minute little, I think you call it a monkeymentary on, on your website. <laughs> you mean my Rocky monkeymentary? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My Rocky mentry. <laughs> yeah. In that, in that documentary, it, it's true that, that it was really just, uh, me looking back at, what had brought me to the spiritual life to the point of where I decided to devote my life solely to spiritual development and helping others. And in that little documentary, uh, the filmmaker uh, Elizabeth Jenkins does a really good job of portraying my life as it was. And then my life, the way, the way it became as a monk. And then I think I, I was able to speak clearly about the reasons why you know, I, I did make that transition and it's really straightforward in, in, in that, in my mind, in that I was offered to have all of my dreams essentially come true. And then even before the ghetto blaster thing, when I was touring with Nina, you know, that lifestyle was what I had always dreamed of. Right. And I really have this, like this experience of being dropped off, like getting off the plane in LAX and looking around and going, Oh shit, I am still the little kid from, you know, feeling like a little kid from Denver, you know, and there's no meat, there's no substance to to my experience outside of the time that I'm actually there. Like I and you know, and I, I've spent a lot of that time, you know, drinking and and maybe not connected to my life as much as I would like to have been. So that experience it definitely like as much as I love it and you know, I'm still a musician and you know would you know interested in touring and recording again but back then i didn't have the the emotional strength to understand that i need to feel good about myself (laughs) (laughs) rather than having other people tell me that i'm good to be be a stable person and that's one of the hardest parts about this industry period it's like the the vulnerable the constant vulnerability you know, and then you get blown up like you're the greatest person in the world, just like you said, and then you get dropped off at LAX and you got to go home and, and you're, you're just you again. And the sort of constant roller coaster of the ups and downs of it, it, it takes a toll, you know, I totally get it. It's so tricky. Cause like, do you think at the same time, it's that without that drive to want to do that and just the, putting every ounce of your soul in there, you would have never gotten to those places Oh man, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. But at the same time, it's the very thing that's going to screw you up possibly for the rest of your life or it's something that you're going to have to deal with, you know, yeah. for the rest of your life. It's, this is, uh, I think it's really important. Um, the thing that you're talking about is really important 
Cause I still have that drive in me now that says, you know, for some reason I need, I need to be respected and thought of as a good musician and thought of as a, mm. you know, I, I have to have that. Yeah. And if I didn't have that, I probably would have stayed in Denver and played reggae and blues gigs for the rest of my life. But like you said, I think you nailed it is that that's the very thing that makes you vulnerable because somebody in the band or the leader of the bands can like get pissed at you or something. And then all of that, like shit that you've been looking for, like that justification for your existence and you know, that, that assurance that you're, that you're a good musician. It just, it's so, so subjective that it's, 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 it's really hard. And I think it's why so many, you know, famous people publicly just spin out into the, (laughs) like some level of madness. Yeah. So what was it that tipped you into like, I'm going to go full on monk? Depression and anxiety and drug addiction. Mm. And just being like, you know, as I got deeper into Buddhism, I saw it as a way to be useful in the world. I, I had a, actually always had thought that, that monks were cool, <laughs> even <laughs> when I was a kid. <laughs> uh, and I, I met some, you know, ordained people in various traditions and I really, so you can actually still be kind of a normal person and take on this like persona of like, this is what I do with my life, which is look within and try to benefit other people, try to improve yourself as a person. And it felt like the right thing to do. I think the other thing about this path for me too, is like, so it's like, I just had a baby and Mm. I was excited for that because the other thing that I think that's required, if you're going to be successful on, on a big level in the music industry is that, or acting or whatever. It's like the focus is on you all the time. It's on me. How am I going to get better? How am I going to get this career going? How am I going to do this? I need to get a better gig. Me, me, me. And it's just like survival to a certain degree. It's not like your ego's crazy out of control. It's just that like, how are you going to survive? You know, it's hard and it's all me, 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 me all the time. And it's like, I'm exhausted of that. You know, I, I was looking forward to having a child and be like, it's not about me anymore. It's about us. Because yeah. I think at the end of the day, it's not fulfilling unless yeah. you're a narcissist, which I don't yeah. think we really are. You know? No, I mean, maybe a little. But <laughs> 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 well, well, I think if we were, then that would have been, you would have gotten on the road and been like, this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life. I'm satisfied. Yeah. You know, but it's yeah. not that satisfying. You get out there and you're like, this is great. It's everything I wanted. I'm having fun, but how much does it mean anything really? You know, you're just playing yeah. gigs. You're just playing gigs to 20,000 people instead of a bar. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's great, but it's also, is it enough? You know, is it the end all be all? Yeah. And that's really, it's a, that's, that's a spiritual question. It really is. It's like, what makes your life meaningful? And the fact of the matter is it's the same for everybody, whether you're, you know, Christian or Muslim or whatever, these fundamental questions end up being the same. And if you're a self-focused narcissist, who's only thinking about themselves and is taking advantage of other people and kind of screwing over other people, you're not happy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> even, even though you may be rich or whatever, and it, it, you know, it may present as power or something like that. Ultimately, like what what we what everybody wants at the end of the day is to feel like they're loved, right? And to feel, and to feel like their life is meaningful. 
and narcissist, you know, the kind of narcissistic people that we kind of see appearing around of late and it just really selfish, 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 selfish people in their hearts, you know, that you can't be that person and have that kind of connected, meaningful relationship with other people that actually makes your life feel like it's got some substance and, and, and love, you know, that general term love that's on greeting cards. It is so important because it's, it's a sense of peace and a sense of home and it's a sense of, of calm that you you don't get anywhere else. And I've never had a child, but you know, just talking to people who have had them, I think it's an unimaginable amount of like, I would do anything for this other person for yeah. what I could tell. <laughs> or, you know, I, I don't even know if it has to be that deep. The reality is, is that I've got to do everything for this kid. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't even know. Yeah. Cause it's weird as a, I don't know. It's weird in the beginning for right now because he doesn't talk. He doesn't really have a personality. He's this blob that like, you know, shits a lot and, and, and yeah. you know, but, I mean, he's amazing and it's incredible, but it, until he really can get to know the, I don't, I think that connection is a gradual thing. You know? oh, okay. um, yeah. Yeah. But, I'm sure it's but, different on some level for everybody. So yeah, I, I, like right. I said, I have no freaking idea. So yeah, right. yeah, please, please but, continue. Yes. I, I agree. I think it is different for anyone, for me, but, but, it, but there's just no question that like I'm looking forward to every second of this kid's life, you know, and I'm looking forward to like whatever I can do to make this kid a great person and to make this thing, you know, which feels so much more important than playing a great bass solo. You know what Mm. I mean? I don't think it it, it ever, you know, just to have that something that's bigger than me, you know, (laughs) anyway. Yeah, I I agree. That's just like an aspect of it. And and again, you can be a great bass player touring, you know, the world and playing, you know, great shows and still have a happy, meaningful life. I didn't, I don't mean to say that. (laughs) But, but for me, I didn't have the balance of being able to like support myself emotionally and do all that stuff. I had put all of my eggs in the basket of being a performer and that balance wasn't there for me. So being who I am, I just like, through you know through all the weights off the overboard from the balloon hey there's an analogy it just like went completely the other direction (laughs) (laughs) right and eventually that balance that came out of balance as well and you know right so that would be my next question so what brought you back to playing the drums and and to to playing music first of all how, how long were you like officially you know, wearing the garb and, and being a monk? Well, I, I had been studying for more than 10 years and I, I'm still, a, a, you know, a, a daily meditator and do retreats and stuff. But by the time I ordained, I had been studying for, for many years. And then I was officially ordained for about five years. And during that time, I, I was asked to start teaching in, uh, on the East Coast. So I, I was doing some teaching in L.A., they asked me, like the tradition asked me to move to um, New. I ended up in New Bedford, Massachusetts, and then I also taught in Boston and Providence, Rhode Island. So I was the, cool. you know, the daily teacher at three different Buddhist centers, and you know, I, I taught again entry level courses, college level courses, retreats, uh, workshops um, at those three different places. 
And honestly, what happened is that it was too much for one human being. And I, I started to just like get so burned out. I mean, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. And again, I spent all that time just really doing something that I felt strongly in my heart would benefit other people. And, you know, just teaching them techniques to be able to like deal with difficult relationships or to forgive somebody or, you know, even ways to, 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 to look at addiction that might help them, you know, get out of some horrible state of mind they might be in giving people tools that I know worked to let go of anger and, and hatred. Those there's very valuable tools that everybody should have. But I was, I was so booked up so much of the time that I started to get sick and started to burn out. So eventually I was just like realized that I, I was done with that stage of my life and ready to move on. Well, again, balance. <laughs> yeah, balance, not, not my middle name. <laughs> <laughs> wow. wow. So then what happens next? Did you move back to LA or? Uh, actually, no, I came back to Colorado just to have a place to land because I have family here. Mm. Um, and I didn't really know that I was going to go back into music, though. I'd always had that connection. Like I said, like, you know, I'd be in my monk mobile driving from venue to venue and I'd, you know, I'd turn on the radio and I'd be like, oh, man, I love that song. And I feel it like I want to play that groove, you know, or I'd hear James Brown tune or something. I'd be like oh my God, this, you know, subtlety of the ghost notes and that pattern or whatever. <laughs> my heart would just go like, <clears throat> <laughs> I started uh, looking for a gig locally and um, practicing. I started getting my chops back. Yeah. Um, little known secret, taking time off can actually be good for you. I think I'm actually, this is going to sound narcissistic, but I, I think I'm actually better now than I, than I was before. Right. I absolutely think that's true for me. Taking time off is vital because yeah. you just get kind of, you know, you just get into the same, playing the same things and yeah. you know, your muscle memory almost becomes too much, you know? Yeah. And you start playing from your physical body and not from your head or your heart, you know what I mean? Uh, for me, anyways. Yeah. I need to take a break and just, then when I come back to the base, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm playing things from my brain and not just from my muscle memory. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm totally looking forward. I know you've been in the Dwight gig for a while, but I'm really looking forward to seeing you play again because it's been like 15 years or something. Yeah. I would imagine you've gotten at least a little bit better since then. <laughs> <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> well, the funny part about that is, is that really the Dwight gig is a singing gig. Like I'm, I'm singing uh, with him almost on every song and it's like duets all night basically. And I'm doing all the high stuff and he does all the low stuff. So the bass playing is, it's, yeah. it's traditional country. There's, I literally don't play, I don't, I don't play anything that's not on a record. And what's on the record is root five, root five, you know, <laughs> or one, yeah. three, five shuffle, you know? So I don't cool. know if it's the best showcase of me as a bass player at this point. <laughs> you know, I think what I really meant when I was saying that is that it would be fun to play with you again. Yes, I think it'd that's... be fun to like, play some groups. Like I, I feel like that connection that we had back way back when is probably still there. That, yeah. And then we've just both been through so much weird shit that, yeah. you know, it's probably going to be still cool, but we're both hopefully I'm, I'm better than I was then as well. <laughs> So you you mentioned you're playing some country now too, right? 
Yeah, yeah, just funny. Like, well, I, I recently found your podcast, and I really hadn't played much country at all, except in college, I used to play in Longmont five nights a week at the Jack Daniels bar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, uh, that must have been rough. I, yeah, but again, like, I'm, I'm really glad I got to, I played my drums that many hours a week, you know, that really, it starts to add up. Yeah. But anyway, I just did, uh, through a friend of a friend, like, every gig I've ever gotten, uh, a guy named Austin Wallert, who's got some connections, like all his records are recorded and produced in Nashville, but I was asked if I'd want to do that gig. So I'm starting to do the rodeo circuit here in Colorado for a little while, nice. like literally rodeos. <laughs> <laughs> well, my first gig with Dwight was literally my first rodeo. Yeah. I've never <laughs> been to one. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. It's, 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 it's an interesting path, you know, having gone starting from, Chops and Berkeley in college, and and just now I'm on a gig where there's it's not about chops, you know, it's about songs and great songs and and melody and writing and uh, good lyrics, and it's you know speaking of fulfilling, you know, I think it's the most fulfilling gig in terms of music that I've I've had, you know. Oh, really? Uh, that's an interesting to hear. Um, we have a lot of common in common. I think we always just got along as friends. Yeah. So there's that connection, but then I, 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 from listening to these podcasts, I kind of clear that you like, you know, you made your way into these sub gigs and he's really great. Like you said, that wedding band, I heard you talking about that recently and yeah. the written hour and you know, the kind of a different path that I think is suited to you as a, as a more accomplished, like trained musician, right. whereas I end up in like these crazy ass punk bands and like Afrobeat bands and you know, like trying to get a record contract and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. Two different paths, actually. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I came out and tried to stay very focused. And like, even within like studio or, or live, I'm like, I, I don't want to be in a cave. I'm, I, you know, I love making records, but it's, I really want to get on the road and I love traveling and all that stuff. So I just, I want to be that guy. You know, I'm not going to waste time trying to be in a band. Yeah. You know, it's like, I just want to be, that guy. Plus, like I said, the fringe had burned me out from any kind of band leader situation. I just want to go, I want to pay, get paid good money to play my bass and then go home, you know? So, you know, eventually all worked out, but it's, you know, it's 20 years of stories that, that took me here. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of those in between times. Like you, you and I both can talk about like the high points of all of this stuff we've done, but then there's those like weeks where I did almost nothing and just (laughs) drank every night and, you know, like tried to figure out how I was going to pay the rent or whatever. And, you know, like, but the high points are the high points. I'm really, I feel super fortunate to have been able to do the things I've done and had the opportunities I've had and not just in music, but in, you know, to be a Buddhist teacher and, yeah. you know, kind of get back to all of that. And, you know, I'm kind of reapproaching the whole music aspect of my life with a, a more balanced mind and, you know, feeling more confident in general well, about everything. <laughs> well, that's so great. Well, judging from your website, it looks like you're getting to a place that's pretty balanced because you, you're doing some production you know, and writing songs and doing all this, the studio stuff and playing gigs, but you're also, I guess like life coaching, you'd call it or just. Yeah. It's kind of like life coaching. It's gotten, you know, that the idea of life coaching has sort of been formalized as there's specific training you can get, but like what I'm doing at 
honestly, I w- was looking for a way to combine all the Buddhist training I've had in the, the teaching mm-hmm. uh, with kind of the understandings that I got from just being a musician, like practicing a lot and, you know, the balanced life sort of issues that you and I have been talking about, bringing that together in a, in a, you know, sort of a service that I can offer people who might be navigating difficult times in their lives as creative people of any kind, like coders, painters, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, with really, with really specific purposeful things that can be done, you know, you know, meditation wise and just, you know, how to approach different difficulties, you know, like you and I both have, have said in this interview, uh, that we were both punks, Right. You know, and for me, when I was punk, it was because my, you know, I had ego. I just wasn't sure of myself, and you know, it was like small man syndrome, where you're like, ah! you know, and just really navigating those things and helping bring my my understanding, my my Buddhist teachings into a a place where I can at least try to help other people navigate the same things that I've gone through. Yeah. So that becomes my. It's like it's called a the training is called positive psychology coaching or mentoring or counseling. And so I do offer that for creative people along with private lessons. Um, those have all been online lately. Well, dude, this has been so awesome. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time and being part of this. Uh, Cause I think it's a great story and, you know, um, I'll put a link to all your stuff in the, in the show notes and stuff to, but, yeah, just uh, jeffreymintz.com has got all my all my stuff in one place. But, yeah, you know, ultimately, it's just been really good to see you. Absolutely. I know. I was trying to think it's probably at least been 15 years since we've yeah. seen each other. And next time I'm in Denver or next time you're in L.A., come by. Let's let's jam. Let's do play together. Let's make a, make a reason, you know, or I'll come by. Yeah, I bring a totally baby. agree. Yeah, like my, my plan is to get back to L.A. in the next six months or so. Oh, well, I mean, I'm definitely going there to to do a few things business wise, but I'd like to actually live in the area again, but it'd be good to meet your kid. I'm assuming he's named Jeffrey. <laughs> <laughs> I, have an, I have an uncle Jeff that would have loved that too, but uh, <laughs> no, his name is Lennon. Oh, nice. <laughs> so nice. Yeah. after the Marxist uh, Russian rule. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, All just right. keeping it socialist. <laughs> Keeping it socialist. <laughs> well, that was more of a kind of a half catch up, half interview. So I, I hope you enjoyed that. I, I did. <laughs> but it, it was interesting looking back. And I guess I didn't realize at the time how much we had in common as far as just, I think what, what we had in common was just that we we're so driven to be great musicians and the musicianship just we can't let it go we just want to be better all the time and it's driven both of us to you know move to crazy places like los angeles california where it's you know it's a harder place to live than denver denver's a really nice comfortable place but um you know we both have this crazy drive in us that's that's um that's hard to let go of I guess I didn't realize it at the time, but uh, looking back, it seems pretty obvious. Um, but that's always the challenge to find the balance between, you know, not feeling challenged as a musician and maintaining some kind of quality of life, you know, that that's that's comfortable and, and they don't always go together. That's for sure. I've often described being a musician 
as a blessing and a curse because it's it's great that I have this drive to do something and I have something that I love and I've been very fortunate and worked really hard to make my living at it. But at the same time, there's not really any chance of getting off this train. You know, it's just, uh, I, I have to be a musician. It's just one of those things that's in you. And if you're out there deciding whether to make a go at it, I think that's a good test. It wasn't a decision for me. I, I had to do this. Um, I think I, I might have said that on another podcast, but this just brings it all up, you know, all over again. He mentioned Reggae on the Rocks, which is a big reggae festival at Red Rocks Amphitheater each year in Morrison, Colorado. And I mentioned the DOD tours, which um, it stands for Department of Defense. So it's basically like cover bands. We get these tours and tour military bases all over the world. So it was a great way to see Europe, you know, and get paid for it. Uh, I went to Europe in 92 with a band from Denver called Chucky and the Cyclones. Shout out to them. Eric Valentine also produced Smash Mouth, and we mentioned him on the Greg Camp episode. Siddhartha is a 1922 novel by Herman Hess that deals with the spiritual journey of self-discovery of a man named Siddhartha during the time of the Gautam Buddha. TV Glotzer is the song by Nina Hagen Band, which was a cover of White Punks on Dope by The Tubes. Her version had different lyrics, and they were in German. By the way, if you have any questions that I fail to address in this ending segment or comments about anything, please feel free to reach out. You can reach out on Facebook or fan mail at divebyrockstar.com because I would absolutely love to hear from you. So I hope you enjoyed this show and we'll talk to you on the next one. I'm a wow, you've made it to the end. I'm hoping it's because you completely enjoyed yourself and are now filled with knowledge and inspiration to move forward with your dreams. If that is the case and you would like to stay informed of new episodes, live events, and general news, please go to divebarrockstar.com and sign up for the mailing list. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or complaints about anything you hear on the show, please email me at fanmail at divebarrockstar.com and you may even end up on the show. We at the Dive Bar Rockstar Podcast, with all of our hearts, thank you for listening, and remember, it's all about dreams. <laughs>